might a pastor lead a multicultural congregation so that the people and their ministry flourish? The Reverend Dr. Jackie Lewis is Senior Minister for Public Theology of Middle Collegiate Church in the East Village of New York City. Middle is the church of her dreams and prayers, a multi-ethnic rainbow coalition of love, justice, and worship that rocks her soul. Reverend Jackie uses her gifts as author, activist, preacher, and public theologian to build a more just and fully welcoming society in which everyone has enough. Her work has been featured in numerous media outlets, including the Wall Street Journal, the Washington Post, the front page of the New York Times website, and the Associated Press. In this episode, I speak with Reverend Jackie about her work. With me, she explores the arc of fierce love and multicultural practices in her ministry, marriage, and congregation. She offers timeless lessons about what she calls a multi-everything ministry that offers love and inclusion to everyone. You're listening to The Distillery at Princeton Theological Seminary. Reverend Lewis, thank you so much for being with us today. We're so excited to have you both as a PTS alum and a woman in leadership. And may I add a Black woman in leadership. I have followed your work for a very long time and am grateful for the opportunity just to speak with you and to share and to just talk about your books and your ideas and your prolific and amazing career. Oh, thank you, Sushama. It's my great honor to be with you. PTS alums, here we are doing the thing. Yay. Excellent. Yeah, and you know what? I love love your singing and songs. So (laughs) just in a moment, like, can you talk to us a little bit for just a second about your PTS experience or anything that you have to say about the experience of seminary? I would love to. I have to say, by the time I said yes to God and went to seminary, I was geeked out of my mind to get there. Um, I had been feeling kind of called to ministry since I was about nine years old, almost 10. When uh, when Dr. King got killed, it was this sort of first phase of thinking I was supposed to be a drum major for peace. And then I just started being mentored by some people at my Presbyterian church in Chicago, taking me on mission projects in the synod, uh, getting introduced to Cesar Chavez's work. So by the time I was you know, 10, I was like, oh, I think this is what I'm supposed to do. But I had math and science aptitude, Sushama. So let's instead go study it. engineering because whatever. I love it. <laughs> so, right. By the time I finally went to, to seminary at 30, I started in January and I finished my MDiv in two and a half years because I was in a hurry to get, you know, get into the world of, of work. It was a beautiful time at Princeton. In fact, this year's alum invitation is to my class of 1992. 1992, uh, gathering this May, uh, we were working on hunger and how to use our lunch money and how not to waste food. Uh, we were working on gay ordination and what what was the big deal about having f- all the folks you know, who are loved by God, be able to serve God. So we were the yellow ribbon bunch. We were working on race. I had a chance to do Ntozaki Shange's play for colored girls in one of my preaching classes. And so that was both beautiful um, and a little controversial because we did not take out the curse words. Oh my goodness. I started the gospel. Yes, honey. (laughs) I started the gospel choir with a really beautiful uh, multi-ethnic multicultural 
a bunch of folks, folks from Germany learning how to clap in the choir. That's That was designed to make you laugh. So it was some of the best two and a half years of my life. I felt so held in a space of joy. I lived in Brown. Um, we did a bunch of media stuff. We, you know, tossed footballs on the quad. It was gorgeous, uh, really beautiful time. And I learned so much from Peter Paris, bless his heart, and, um, you know, Cleo LaRue and Jim Kay. I was a real preacher kind of person and from Frida Gardner. And I just, so many beautiful professors shaped my worldview. And my classmates were just joyful. And I just had such a good time. So thank you, PTS. We had stuff, you know, we had stuff. We were working out stuff around privilege and racial dynamics, but I wouldn't trade any day of that two and a half years. Uh, what the black students did together, what the, the work we did on womanism together, the making a room for feminists to read it was just activism and theological study that was a blessing, right? You know, to give up your life and take a time out and sit at the feet of wise people. And re you get reading just for just like because you want to and learning just because you feel called to. Oh, it was awesome. It was amazing. That's wonderful. And you, you're saying some names that just will ring true for so many people. Can you elaborate a little bit on what was it like to be a student at that time? Because I know I've been there for about 10 years. So there's, I feel like there's been uh, kind of moments, moments in like maybe three year shifts as MDiv students come and go that match what's going on in the culture. Can you talk about some of the moments in your life while you were at PTS at that time in that two and a half years? Yeah, I mean, I started school in, in January of 1990. So... We are in the kind of Reagan-Clinton years. Womanism is new, if you will. And so yeah. when Katie Cannon comes to school to teach preaching, we're just all like, what is this brilliant, angelic, badass woman talking about? Woo! Right? We're like, yeah, right? We've got, um, you know, we, we lose a couple of, of, of women who don't really get tenured um, at school at that time. And we, we are trying to think about what is a white woman's Christ and a black woman's Jesus, right? We are trying to figure out what's the difference between feminism and womanism and what's that critique being offered by, by Dolores Williams and others. We, you know, we, we're just trying to figure it out. And we are, we are cast against an America that is, Absorbed with the I and less with the we? What is a civil rights movement then? What do black students feel like, black non-Presbyterian students? I'm a black Presbyterian student. What are these black, you know, Aubrey Hendricks is there when I'm there, you know? And what are we, what are we the black men? What are the black men crafting in a context of a white institution with a lot of money? that has given them scholarships, but can't honestly capture their imagination for a fully equal and just society. 
what are black women and black men trying to cultivate and curate together in the black students theological space it it was foment it was rough some days it was a cafeteria that was alive with you know chatter and frustration it was a chapel alive with music from the black tradition inside this presbyterian white container it was all the things it was just all the things it was princeton as a a petri dish of of wealth and privilege and a petri dish for you know out of the box thinking or trying to figure out what the box is and what it shouldn't be. I felt like I was in class all the time. What does this mean? I, I remember I remember being in a classroom with some Presbyterian students. Some of them were evangelical, very evangelical. I didn't know I was evangelical, just to be honest with you, Shama. Like I didn't know what that word was. I remember being in a classroom talking about gay ordination. And I said, what? is the big deal. Mm. What What is this about? Mm-hmm. You know, and what does the Bible say? Which is a question I would have asked as a 30-year-old woman coming, growing up in the church. And, you know, well, the Bible says, you know, gay is an abomination. Like, where? Like, had I ever read the word abomination in my life? Right, right. Where was that? You know, where did we read Leviticus and Deuteronomy, except for the Ten Commandments and the Exodus story as children? I don't know. But it was so shocking. I was like, what? Where is that? And and also, by the way, women shouldn't talk in church. What? Where's that? So it was just the most interesting time of personal investigation and insight. And I write in my book, Fierce Love, finding the heretic in myself mm. and being so delighted in her. Like, to be honest, oh, hell no, right? That can't be what we're trying to believe. You know what I mean? Why? 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 Uh, why are we stuck on those texts? I found mm. myself asking, mm-hmm. as opposed to another set. Like, oh, everyone's making their own canon, hmm. whether they want to admit it or not. And what's mine? And how do I do love in this place? And, um, you know, Michael Livingston was the a campus chaplain when I came to school. And now is a really, really dear friend of mine. But I remember being in his office sometimes thinking, well, what in the heck is, is this about? And am I worthy to be here? Um, am, I, am I okay to do this? And Michael saying, it's exactly because you're who you are that you're okay to do this and how that lit my theological imagination on fire to let go of the, I won't say the bad word here, but the let go of the stuff. But like the let go of that, let it go. If it isn't about liberation and love and justice and peace and freedom and God's incredible, awe-inspiring delight in each of us, like let it go. And I was just in this journey of, letting go and picking up and letting go and picking up. And I was just like uh, Helen Keller when she learned how to read with her hands, you know, how she was running around everywhere touching. I just was running around everywhere saying, 
can I read that book? What's that book? What's the, what's in the bibliography of that book? So I can read what's in the bibliography of that book. You know, how can I just ingest um, new thought to guide my feet? It was amazing. It's amazing. Yeah. And you know what? Since you brought up Fierce Love, why don't just start there? Mm -hmm. Let's start there because I think that Mm -hmm. that's the perfect to begin the conversation. Because we, I mean, we as a team and me personally dug into Fierce Love. You start the book off talking about Ubuntu. Mm -hmm. I am who I am because we are who we are. Right. Can you describe what it is and why you chose that as the starting point of the book? Yep. Yeah. In in a way, what I'm what I'm wanting to claim is that I got to Ubuntu uh, two ways. One was literally when I was writing my PhD dissertation, I did a lot of stuff on leadership studies and no kidding, a book called The Fifth Discipline had Ubuntu in there. I'm like, what is this? And the greeting, Salbona, you know, I see you and, and the response to Kona. And what, like they were saying in the book, this would be a way to really rewire the way we lead in corporate life. You know, what makes a successful business? What makes a successful team? I was so curious about it. And I, I, I really dove deep into leadership theory, Howard Gardner and lots of um, writers on leadership thinking, why are Sunday mornings still segregated? That was my research question for my PhD. And I bring, I bring up the Pentecost paradigm to say part of my dissertation is in that book. And I bring up, and I want to say I got to Ubuntu both through the leadership lens, but also then John and I went to South Africa. And to to go to Robben Island and to imagine the incarceration of Nelson Mandela and how he found the humanity of his captors through Ubuntu. Mm. Ubuntu and Ubuntu and Ubuntu. I just tried to learn how to say that so I could feel Zulu when I say it. A human is a human through other humans. So he, Mandela was, these people didn't come to the world hating. They learned how to hate me. And if they learned how to hate me, they can learn how to love me. And I can learn how to love them. And their survival and their thriving are tied up with his. White Afrikaner racist captors, humanity, tied up with his. You expect that from Bishop Tutu because, okay, he's a bishop, <laughs> you know? But Mandela was a warrior, right? He was a warrior. Like, what? So I, I kind of imagine that Ubuntu predates even the world's religions that talk about love neighbor as self, which is all of them. That it is, I imagine, we get up out of a, we, you know, we walk out of the cave into the light thinking, who's going to? hunt and who's going to gather and who's going to cook and who's going to make the fire and who's going to watch the kids, that there was a kind of interconnected human relating that as we became human, we knew we needed to each other. And we have forgotten that. We have, we who are all from Africa, all of the humans have forgotten that we cannot do this by ourselves. And so I wanted to start with what is essentially human, which isn't code and creed and class and confession. It isn't who's in, who's out. It isn't denominations. 
it isn't even Christian, mm-hmm. which I am. It is actually humans loving each other, seeing each other, being concerned about each other, having a shared self-interest. You live, I live. You're hungry, my stomach growls. Your kids ain't got no health care. I need to go to the policy table. Your elders are making a choice between you know, food and medicine. I need to think about how our economy works that we are inextricably connected one to the other. Injustice anywhere is a threat to justice everywhere, is what King would say. All of this is what it is that is my religion now. I I believe assiduously in love and love as a public ethic, as a calling in, as, as ferocious courage and rule-breaking kindness that is, I believe, the only thing that can heal the world. And Ubuntu sets that up for me as a frame that everyone can find their way into. Mm -hmm. I love that. I want to start with something about the stories that kind of give life and voice to what you're talking about. Mm -hmm. Because I feel like you're very honest and vulnerable in fierce love and sharing kind of the challenging moments in your life. I'd be curious, Rev, what was your process in deciding to share those stories publicly? And how would you recommend to leaders to share similar stories? Because I think what happens when you share stories like that and you share vulnerabilities in your life and in the life of your family and your marriage and your people and your congregation is you open it up to make people feel less vulnerable. Hmm. Like they can share their stories. They can share too. Exactly. Yeah, they can share too. And so what, what would you say? How, what made you share it? And what's the process of sharing as other pastors and faith leaders listen to you and think about this? Yeah. That's an excellent question. And, you know, I would say I have trafficked in vulnerability and truth uh, for all of my ministry. I think it's just so important. I just think it is so important to be authentic and transparent and real with our congregations who often want to idealize us or put us on a pedestal or make us a little less than God. Well, the psalmist says we're all a little less than God, so why me? Um, But I also think honestly, right? Uh, taught preaching a lot uh, in different contexts. You know, there's an appropriate vulnerability from the pulpit, right? It's how authentic can we be and how appropriate can we be in our preaching that helps people come along with us. Jesus was vulnerable. We can be vulnerable. Maybe in the pulpit, there's um, an appropriate sharing of story that points to the liberative text but that doesn't make people like lose their minds inside your story. But in this book, I'm not preaching in a pulpit. In this book, I'm saying, here is my truth. And if and I'm saying it because I want to preach outside of the box. I want outside of that box. I wanted Jews and Muslims and Buddhists and humanists and Unitarians and atheists and agnostics and Zoroastrians, right, and Sikhs to pick up this book and go, oh, my God, I see what she means. She's talking about love. How could I do it, Sushama, if I wasn't real about it? I just 
couldn't. I lost my mom four years ago somewhere in the world when I was cooking this book inside my body. I felt like she was giving me blessing and indictment to tell the truth on myself, about myself, to invite others to do the same, to say really actually loving ourselves is an act of truth. Loving each other is an act of truth. Like it's You can't love a fake thing. You can't love a lie. You can't love through a lie. So I was bold. I read the audiobook, right? When you buy the audiobook, you buy my voice. And I was reading it going, really, girl, did you need to do that? Hmm. Why did you do that? What were you thinking that day? But I don't really have any regrets. I think it was bold and brave so that other people would bold and brave, bold and brave and say, here's who I really am. And I, I, if I can be honest about who I am, I maybe can love this person. And if I can be honest about who I am and love this person, I can love my neighbor honestly for who they are. I can love the strangest part of myself. I can love the parts of myself that are foreign. I can love the parts of myself that I don't really like. I can love them, have an unconditional regard for them. And then I can have that same kind of reaction relationship to my neighbor and to the world. I think it's the only way to get there, Sushama. That's, that's why I did it. But I think it's really important exercise for clergy to strip down the facades that we think we're supposed to have as clergy. Yes. And get real. Yeah. I want to go back to, one, this kind of rule-breaking kindness. I'm mm-hmm. a United Church of Christ. <clears throat> so in UCC, we talk about kind of extravagant or radical hospitality yeah. or something. We, we have like these things we do with phrases that we live by. And they're not just phrases. I don't mean it that right. way. Like they're things right. that we, they're mantras yeah. to be lived by. And I wonder if you could just discuss with us, what is rule-breaking kindness? And then that leads me to ask about ferocious courage and fierce love. But let's start with some of yeah. the, what are the terms we're using for this book? What is rule-breaking kindness? Yeah, um, I I tell the story in the book of having a car accident when I'm 22 years old, and I'm just having a beautiful day uh, in September, and my car flips over on the sunroof and the tires, the sunroof to the tires, and finally lands in a hail of glass and blood and yuck. And I'm in the hospital, worried about my fella and my folks are not around and his folks are not around. And I'm like a 22 year old kid, really. How, how old are you when you're 22 with no money? You know, pretty like, you're just, you know, you got no money, you got no card, you know, you're just kind of like vulnerable. You are absolutely a baby right out of college. And I am crying at a phone bank, calling our sets of parents in this white petite Canadian lady walks up to me and wants to know what's wrong. And I started calling her the good Canadian in this book because she did all the things that you and I know that Samaritan did in our gospel. She just listened. 
She was ridiculous. She was radical hospitality. She was extravagant love. She took me to get food and took me to a hotel and checked me in and waited for me to close the door and left me and then got me the next day and took me to get a car and took me to the hospital and, you know, like drove me and my man like out to the highway. Now, here you go. You know, have a nice trip home. Why did she do that? There was no reason for her to do it. She broke all the rules. She broke all the taboos. She, she crossed boundaries. She broke cultic borders, just like the Samaritan, just like Jesus. And that's what I mean by rule-breaking kindness. And people do it all the time. They just don't know how to celebrate it and how to like affirm it, have appreciative inquiry for it, and then do it again, right? Like when, when Linda Sarsour invites Sharon Browse, when, when Palestinian Muslim Linda invites, you know, Zionist Rabbi Sharon to any conversation, they are breaking the rules. Nobody wants that. On December 5th this year, we celebrated that we are alive, that we're here. Yes. Amen. One year more, right? Commemorating a fire is not a celebration, but we're here. And we marched from our temporary location down down from 21st and Park to 7th and 2nd, and we sang songs. And There was a man who is one of our community leaders who was just not feeling like he looked beautiful physically. He just was kind of a little drippy and a little, you know, not well. And I just watched my colleague Amanda just love him, you know, and bring him to meet me. And like, then I'm in the love with him. And what I'm saying is we break the rules all the time of what we think is in and out. And that's what we're supposed to do. That's rule-breaking kindness. My God, you know, my deacon who came out to us as trans and modeled for us, like, how to get it straight. And, like, I don't even see that anymore. Like, I don't, there's no so-whatness or so, or no, like, big dealness. Rule-breaking kindness makes new rules. Crashes the old ones and makes new ones. Mm -hmm. That's our job as people of faith. It is. Until there are no more rules about who's in and who's out. And everybody's in. When you think about those, that rule-breaking kindness, and then we sort of match it with the fierce love that you talk, you're talking about, it, does fierce love embody that rule-breaking and that ferocious courage? Is it next steps in, in that process? What does that mean? When you go from rule-breaking kindness, what's next, or is it under the umbrella of fierce love? Yeah, I think it's under the umbrella. Mm -hmm. If someone says to me, you know, I mean, it's a long title, but if someone says to me, what is fierce love? Fierce love is ferocious courage. Mm -hmm. Fierce love is bold Mm truth-telling. It is ferocious moral courage. It is ridiculously letting go of the baggage that we carry. Mm -hmm. It is being on a morally courageous hunt for self-acceptance for love of the other, right? This ferocious courage, absolutely. And fierce love is rule-breaking kindness. And I mean rule-breaking kindness directed toward the world to try to understand why the anti-vaxxers, oh my goodness, are so committed to not getting vaccinated, <laughs> right? To, uh, to like, like the, the rule-breaking kindness is, though I totally think perhaps that's just a little crazy, I want to hear you out. 
Right. We were like, let me hear you out. Like it is kind to hear you out. And and in that tr- conversation that when one hopes is not a transaction, they're trying to figure out well why it matters. And so I can say, because the toddlers are gonna die, right? Like like you know, like do you want the three year old sick? Okay, you know. But if but if we can be kind in a, in the context of that womb of mercy and kindness, can we have conversations? That rewire each other. Mm-hmm. Yes, yes, we can. But rule, but it requires rule breaking kindness to stay in the conversation. Mm-hmm. I mean, I loved my five years ago person. To be honest, I thought she was badass. <laughs> yeah. I will just snip. What? No, hell no. That's not what we're doing. Like I'm just hand in the air and like, hey, no, and like lots of tweets and whoop, followers and whatever all to say this is the truth, and it is the truth. Right. It is the truth that we have to take better care of the earth and we need to put the guns down. Right. Those are all the truths. Yeah. It is the truth that white supremacy is a God that too many of us worship. Mm-hmm. That is the truth. I am not going to stop being honest about that. Mm-hmm. But I don't want to weaponize truth. No. So oh show me. Gosh. I don't want to kill people with truth. No. Do you feel me? Yes. Why? The then they don't change. Do. Right. Yeah. They're just ashamed and they're just embarrassed and they're just dead because you killed them with your truth. Mm-hmm. Instead, I want to convert people to love. This is different. It's different. It's just different. Oh my gosh. Amen. Amen. I'm listening to you and I'm thinking of a million questions as I think about fierce love, but as I think about middle church. My 14-year-old is applying for independent high schools. And last week, he had to fill out something that we didn't see immediately after he filled out. But when we spoke with the admissions officer, she shared this with us. And she said that um, Leek, my son's name is Leek, L-E-K-H. She shared with me that Leek said he wants to come to a school where he can be seen and heard. Wow. Yeah. And I thought, mm-hmm. well, I want to come to a workplace where I can see and be heard. I want to come right. to a church where I can be seen and be heard. I mm-hmm. thought it was so authentically who he is as a person and as a young boy, but I, I actually was thinking about it in terms of, isn't that what we all want Okay, is to be able to come to a place and be seen and heard. And I yeah. think what I hear in, people that I know know you and I know who know middle church. And as I understand the ways in which you're talking about multicultural congregations and welcoming people, you create a place where people can be seen and be heard. Yes. And so it resonated with me. And I wonder what you, what you would say about that and just talk to us about what is the Pentecost paradigm? What is middle church? What is happening? that we know about middle church as a place of safety and yes. a sacred listening and active listening. Yeah, that's so beautiful. A place of fierce love, right? It's a place of fierce love. So if we're if we're if we're thinking about the umbrella of fierce love as what I believe middle is, it is a place where more than one language is spoken and that's Pentecost paradigm. Yes. Yeah. More than one, yes, more than one actual human language, but also more than one theological language, you know, mm. and, and 
really understanding that God speaks more than one language. So mm-hmm. that God is speaking Christian light and God is speaking Christian heavy and God is speaking Islam. Uh, God is speaking Judaism. God is speaking, I'm a giant doubter, but I love the music. God is speaking justice. And so when when John and I wrote the Pentecost Paradigm, we were saying, you've got to be multivocal to create safe space for people. They've got to be able to understand what God is saying by any means necessary, like at Pentecost, that you are standing there as a disciple, as a student of God, of Jesus, and you are going to speak, and the Holy Spirit is going to translate that speech. That's the miracle of Pentecost. It's a miracle of hearing, a miracle of understanding, and we want people to be heard and seen and known and loved. That's what it means to welcome people. So what does worship look like? What kind of music? What kind of poetry? What kind of puppets? What kind of dance? What kind of ways can we use art to make worship sing differently to all who are there? So this is this is what this is what it is to love fiercely is you know my that book says uh, the ethical life is learning how to see. A moral life is learning how to see. I would say a morning a moral life is learning how to make sure people feel seen also mm-hmm. and heard and loved and that there's space for their particularity that you love their particularity mm-hmm. that you have a non-possessive delight mm. in their particularity is what it means to love I love that you referred to the fire at middle church in the years since what have you learned? What has Middle Church learned as it's still focused on its role and its dedication to being a multicultural congregation? What have you learned in this year mm-hmm. that's different from previous years? We learned, I mean, you, you, you know, we, you and I grew up in the church and you know, this is the church and this is the steeple and open the door and there's all the people. And like, you know, right. That's like your little, like the church is the people. Yes. Well, well, really it is. When your building burns down and, and all of us who learned how to do ministry during COVID and we learned how to make things happen without the building, we, we really did learn the lesson of the uh, Israelites that God was not in the temple, that we are the temple. And God is in the temple that is us. And that when we're wandering in the wilderness, we, like those Israelite wanderers, have God tabernacled with us. Amen. Amen. And what, what, what advice would you give for church leaders who, who want to know that they can exist as a small church, as a large church, in a multicultural, multiracial way, in what in whatever authentic way that they can, what would you say to church leaders about being a multiracial church yeah. that is authentic? I think I would just say to 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 as honestly as I can, it is really hard work. People actually do like to be with people that are like them. They do. It doesn't require as much work, but it is also joyful, incredible work because it is right. Like there's something right and righteous about the mixing up, 
the rehearsing the reign of God on earth. I would say the maybe the most faithful thing to say is, do we actually believe that we can be segregated now and somehow there's going to be like a reign of God where we parachute out of the world and get to heaven and that will be segregated too? Or does building the reign of God on earth require the acknowledgement of God's incredible diversity as a gift to us? How do, how do we as the church think we're not supposed to lead that charge to rehearse God's reign by making intergenerational, uh, multi-ethnic, multicultural spaces that acknowledge the unique gender and sexuality of God's people as well. I think that's our calling. And I think it's biblical, like all the people praising God in one voice. So I want to know about um, how you define ethical spectacle. And then yeah. how ensure that our church and our churches are engaging in justice in a meaningful way rather than in a performative way? You know, that's a great, those are great questions. So I don't know who said ethical spectacle first. I don't know who said it, but I, but I will attribute it to my friend Mackie Alston and also Isaac Luria. So my friends at Auburn Theological Seminary helped me to think about what you're doing when you're doing a protest or what you're doing when you do performative art outside, because there is performance to it. Um, I didn't really understand that at first, that um, protests were not, the outcome of a protest isn't just you won the issue, right? Or you got the demand. It's actually people watching you protest and see what that looks like for a mob of people to be doing something loving together. Oh, right, I see. That's why March, because you could just write postcards. That could be cool. But you're out there in the world, in Ferguson, in D.C., you know, in Charlottesville, in um, Florida, in Texas. You're out there showing the world what it looks like when good people of moral courage stand up together and gather. That's the spectacle. You're going to lay down on the floor because when people see you do a die-in in that cafeteria in the Capitol, of your nation, they are stopping and watching and they are actually, it is, it is a visual uh, painting. It is a picture of a preferred reality. When we were down there in the Senate building, uh, in the cafeteria, white and Latinx and Asian and indigenous and black bodies intertwined on a floor together with I can't breathe signs on our chest. And you couldn't tell what, what limb belonged to what limb. That's an ethical spectacle. When you are walking five abreasts um, w- toward the Women's March or uh, standing up against Kavanaugh and it's just all these women in hijabs and, you know, you know, long pants and short skirts and being all womanist and just fabulous together. That's an ethical spectacle. When we made a, um, uh, we made a, an arc for the for climate change when you're in New York and we're standing on the arch together. Oh, I see that. It casts, it causes me to pause. It catches my attention. It stimulates my imagination. It is performative. It is. Church is performative, people. It is. And thank God. Like, who wants to be bored? If, if you don't perform a bit, they're going to stay home and watch the soccer game. David is dancing. Like, stop, stop it. Is it, is it unholy? No. But is it performative? Yes, a little bit. 
That's why you like the choir. That's why you're clapping. That's why you're mesmerized by that preacher because there's a performative element to it and it's okay. I admire you as a, as a woman and as a black woman, to a black woman, I'll say it. I admire you as a black woman, um, clergy woman, because you embody the best of the best of the best of us. I'm very clear though about the close connection that you and John have. It's clear in, in how you talk about him and it's clear in who you both are. So I wonder just about you all as, as a clergy couple and how you how you do things like write a book together, how you do things like middle church together. Can you talk to us a little bit about your relationship as a clergy couple without getting too much in your business? You know, it is it is just such a happy relationship. He's a non-competitive, incredibly supportive uh, coach who has spent his life in denominational work and systems work. So we're friends. We love each other. We're goofy together. We're silly together. We have a shared set of values. We do, and we do anti-racist work every day. So John is white. I am black. He's United Methodist. I'm Presbyterian. He's a man. I'm a woman. We're in a mixed relationship on all those levels. But we have such a giant shared um, value system. We talk politics. We talk art. We talk race. We have racial, ethnic dynamics. When who's going to wash the dishes and who's going to cook? I'm kidding. Uh, but we, you know, we are always working on always working on our gender stuff and our power stuff and our race stuff, which is just makes me. I just adore him. How intentional he is. You know, I fell in love with him working together, quite frankly. I think I fell in love with him before he fell in love with me. But he, he was always standing up for me in this context. Um, what does Jackie think? What does Jackie think? What do you think? What does this womanist scholar think in this white world? Oh, my God. I was like, plus you smelled good. Okay, whatever. I like you. So we, we are really uh, honored to have found each other and... And yeah, I think people love us together. Lots of people love us together. And that's lovely um, to think that people can see that we're different, but also really see something juicy and joyful. So Rev, the last question I'll ask you is a question that we, we do try to ask most of our distillery. What would you leave clergy and faith leaders and just leaders with faith in their hearts what would you leave them in terms of advice in a multiracial and or post-pandemic, post-George um, Floyd? And again, we're not post-George Floyd. But like, what would you leave clergy and faith leaders, the advice, the best advice that you can give in this moment um, for them to take with them once they have listened to this podcast and, and heard your amazing, hmm. beautiful voice? Well, first of all, uh, I just want to thank you. Let me just say that for this great work you do. It is Desoria's beautiful work. I would say in the context of like priesthood of all believers, that each and every single one of you has ministry to do. And I say this in fierce love. You are the only person standing where you are in the world. You are the only one standing where you are, working where you work, seeing what you see, knowing what you know, being you. You're the only one right there, placed by the holy to transform the world. That's your job. So get in the river. You don't have to do it all, and you don't have to do it by yourself, 
but the river that is moving for love and justice demands all of the gifts that all of us have so we can heal the world. I would say you are a fierce lover, each and every one of you, and your job is to love the world into healing, and it starts with you. So don't think your job is like, I'm going to go out here and be Miss Justicey, Justicey, and Mr. Justicey, Justicey, if you're not going to love you. you got to love you. you got to love you to do the work. I'm talking about a deep appreciation for your good stuff and your bad stuff. Love it. Love your flesh so you can love your neighbor as you love yourself so you can love the world. Reverend Lucy, thank you so much for this interview. Thank you for this time. Um, I admire your work so much, and I think you're just a true gift to the church. You've been listening to The Distillery at Princeton Theological Seminary. Interviews are conducted by me, Sushama Austin Connor, and Sherry Osting. Our producer is Brooke Mateka. Like what you're hearing? Subscribe to this podcast on Apple, Google Play, or your favorite podcast app. And while you're at it, leave us a review and let us know how we're doing. The Distillery is a production of the Office of Continuing Education at Princeton Theological Seminary. Find out more at thedistillery.ptsem.edu. Until next time, thanks for listening.